filled joy for us to be here today. Uh, I have not mentioned anything about Ambassador Baptist College, but I want to tell you a little bit about what we're all about. People come to me often and say, what other colleges are there like Ambassador Baptist College in America? And I say this, if there were any others like Ambassador, I would not have started Ambassador. There's not a bone in my little body that aspired to being a college president and founding a college. People often ask me, well, was it hard to give uh, the reins over to Alton Beale as a president? I say, not on your life. I didn't want to do it in the first place. God made me do it. But I had preached in Christian colleges for 20 years, and I had seen some things that I saw needed to be included in a college just to train young people. At the time I started Ambassador in 1989, there were a number of good Christian colleges, but there was not one that I knew of whose sole purpose was to train young people uh, to go into the Lord's work. And I felt like there ought to be a college like that. Uh, in 1987, I was in Sellersville, Pennsylvania for a meeting, and the burden became inescapable to me. I'd go to bed with it at night. I'd be awakened in the night. I'd get up with it the next morning. And finally, I said, Lord, I don't have the ability. I don't have the brains, but I know what you want me to do, and your biddings are your enablings. So for two years, I went across America speaking to preachers groups and local churches about my burden. It took two years to raise $400,000 to open the doors the first year. We opened with 37 students. Somebody said that wasn't a good investment. 37 students, $400,000. Well, thank God today we have about 1,000 of our graduates and former students in ministries around the world. We just had our missions conference, and in that uh, brochure of the program for the mission conference, it uh, named all of the graduates of Ambassador that were involved in missions now. And there were over 150 names in that brochure. Uh, when I started Ambassador, here's what I saw in Christian colleges. They would take a young man who was a good student and a, a good personality. They would take him through the bachelor and the master's program and then put him back in the classroom to teach theory. I felt like that wasn't a good way to train young people for the ministry. I wish that you could have heard our chapels last week. We had three of our men. I preached on Friday, but we had three of the men on our staff that preached. And I'll tell you, they are not simply theologians, but they are preachers. When our faculty came to us initially, they had 28 years of experience uh, in the ministry. We have nobody on our staff who is a career academician. Uh, I graduated with 32 hours in Bible. Our girls have to have twice as much Bible as I had. They have to have 61 hours of Bible. Our fellows have to have either 65 or 66 hours of Bible. We give our students more Bible than any college in America. We have done a survey on that. And there's not another Christian college in America that gives their preacher boy 66 hours of Bible. When a fellow graduates from ambassador, he can say, I've been from Genesis through Revelation in the classroom. All of our students have to be involved in a local church. 
They have to be there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They have to go soul winning at least two hours a week for a local church. And uh, our students know that they have an open door. We have an open door policy. Any student that wants to talk to anybody on our faculty, all they've got to do is go to the information desk. And I tell our students at Ambassador, we have no superiors or no inferiors. We only have equals. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And we have no big shots on Ambassador Baptist College. We're just sinners saved by the grace of God. And I want to encourage you to get on our website. It's ambassadors with an S dot edu. Now be sure and put the S on or else you'll get Herbert W. Armstrong. And you don't want to do that. But uh, we have our chapel every morning, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday at 10 o'clock. How many of you are homeschool? Would you raise your hand? All right, if you're homeschool, you need your kids to have a chapel. So turn that on at 10 o'clock. And there are a lot of things on our website that would be of current interest to you. Now let me say this, that we have kept our tuition low for years and years. And really, it, it cost us to do that. Uh, only 65% of our budget is uh, made up of room, board, and tuition. We have to pray in 35% of our budget. And we try to keep our, uh, our room, board, and tuition low because most of the kids that come to Ambassador, many of them come from our graduates or men who are in the ministry. And uh, we have some men that have sent their kids there, three kids, and these men are making only $50,000 a year as a pastor of their local church. So we try to keep that low. And if it were not for churches like this, uh, we could not be in existence. We have about 95 churches that have a, us on their monthly missions giving, and it is a tremendous blessing. And I want to thank uh, your pastor and his wife for being such a tremendous blessing to my wife and me. I'll tell you, you have no idea the thrill it is to us when we're in churches where our graduates are pastoring, pastoring and the power of God is on this young man. I believe that with all my heart. And so thank you so much, uh, Brother Ingram. I would have called you Billy, but I'll call you Brother Ingram. And by the way, remember, I know some things about him you don't know. So if you'd like to give me a good check, I'll tell you some of them. All right. My book on prophecy is the Antichrist living today. When will he be revealed to the world? Two things must take place before the tribulation. What are they? What officially begins the tribulation? What about a third world war? What about America, Russia, Iran, and Iraq in prophecy? All those things are covered in that book. And here's a book that you grandparents ought to get for your grandchildren as stocking stuffers. Uh, the four crises of youth. Four, <coughs> four questions every young person has to answer that will determine the rest of his life. All right, let's stand, please. <coughs> Take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 19. I want to say you folks are a treat to preach to. If a fellow can't preach in this pulpit, he doesn't have any preach in him. All right, Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. I want us to read this all together, all right? Luke 19 and verse 10 together. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save 
that which was lost. All right, look this way. Let's quote it together. Luke 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. See how easy it is to memorize scripture? All right, you may be seated. When I graduated from college in 1961, that's when kids still had dinosaurs for pets, but uh, I immediately went into full-time evangelism. And uh, I noticed in the 60s and the 70s and halfway through the 80s, most of the churches I was in would major on soul winning. That was a persistent uh, message in those churches in those days. But we got to the middle 80s, and I noticed a change. And we got to the place in our fundamental Baptist churches where we were more concerned about our 401ks than we were about people dying and going to hell. And I noticed a difference in the homes. No longer were parents praying their children would have a ministry. They started praying their children would enjoy the American dream. And we were more concerned about their making money than winning people to Christ. But today, ladies and gentlemen, very seldom do I go into a church where the persistent theme is soul winning. Many years ago, Bill Rice III and I started a preacher's meeting at the Bill Rice Ranch. And I never will forget the first meeting we had. We had a pastor that pastored a church of over 2,000 in Sunday school on Sunday. And so he got up and he preached on soul winning and he said this, a lot of my people think that they are paying me to win the people to Christ. But he said the Bible doesn't teach that every preacher is a soul winner. It teaches every Christian a soul winner. He said, and many of my people thought that they paid me to win the souls. But I tried to get across to them the difference in one person doing it or everybody getting involved. So he said, here's what I did. On Sunday night, I brought two men up on the platform. I said, now, here is what I want you to do. I want you to go down in the congregation and bring one person back with you. Then I want you to go down again and bring another person back with you. And then I want you to go down again and bring another person back with you. And I want you to repeat that cycle eight times. And he did. You know how many were on this side? Eight, including uh, uh, in addition to the man who started it. He said, now folks, here's the difference. He said, I want you to go down and bring one person back with you. Listen carefully. He said, then I want two of you to go down and bring two more back with you. Then I want four of you to go down and bring four more back with you. He said, I want you to repeat that cycle eight times just like our brother on the other side. The only difference is you're not bringing back one at a time. Everybody is getting involved and I want you to do that eight times. You know how many people were on this side when he did that eight times? 256 plus the man who started it. Now, folks, I'm not very smart, but I know you get there a whole lot quicker by multiplying than you do by addition. This is adding. This is multiplying. And the Bible teaches in the book of the Acts that every Christian ought to be involved in the matter of soul winning. Now, I want to speak to you tonight on 
Jesus Christ, the master soul winner. And I want to give you four ingredients that were a part of his life that if they are part of your life, there will not be enough demons in hell that keep you from winning people to Christ. Number one, Jesus had an undying love. Ephesians 3 and verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Ephesians 5 and verse 2, and walk in love as Christ had loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Galatians 2 and verse 20, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, for it is the love of Christ that constraineth us, for we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, you know the pattern of Jesus in the Gospels? When he came to a town like Conyers, you know the first thing he'd do? He would hunt up the social outcast and he would show love to the unlovely. Now, it's easy to love somebody who is on our peer, but the test of our Christianity, how we feel about those who are on a lower social plane. Do you remember the context of Luke 19? He came to the town of Jericho Remember Zacchaeus? Publicans were hated people, but Zacchaeus wasn't a publican. He was the chief among the publicans. He was the secretary, the treasurer, the infernal revenue. See, most hated man in all of town. But in Luke 19 and verse 5 it says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must abide at thy house. And that day Zacchaeus was saved. Why? He found somebody who loved him. You remember John 4, 13 and 14? Here's a woman who came at, at midday to draw water. Now let me remind you, women normally did not come at midday to draw water. They would come early in the morning or late at night. Why? At midday they were taking care of their household chores. But I am convinced that this woman came to seek a man. She'd been married five times. She was living with a man that was not her husband. And in John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus said to the woman, Whosoever drink of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drink of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And that day the town harlot drank at the springs of living water. Why, she found somebody who loved her. You remember John chapter 8? Here's a woman taken in the act of adultery. And the Pharisees demanded she be stoned to death. Jesus Christ reached over and wrote something in the sand. Now we're not sure what he wrote in the sand. The Bible doesn't say. But here's a thought. There was a time in the Old Testament when the finger of God wrote something. You remember that? What was it? The Ten Commandments. 
Galatians 3 and verse 22, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Jesus just may have reached over and wrote the Ten Commandments in the sand. Whatever he wrote convicted them in their heart. And he said, all right, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. He looked up, everybody had fled. He said to the woman, John 8, 10, 11, does any man accuse you? She said, no man, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And that day the scarlet woman was made pure because she found somebody who loved her. Hey, a man came to me in Kansas City years ago and he said, Brother Comfort, he said, I go downtown and I see these dirty, stinking, smelly hippies. And he said, it makes me sick. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, how do you think you and I look to God before God saved us? You think God looked down and he saw somebody who dressed nicely? He took a bath and wore deodorant and he had a good personality and he said, I'll save him because he'll be a help to my cause. I said, sir, that's not why God saved you or me. And I said, let me remind you of something. We didn't look so beautiful to God before God saved us. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and in sin. Ephesians 2 and verse 2, we were children of disobedience. Ephesians 2 and verse 12, we were strangers. We were aliens in our mind by wicked works. Ephesians 2 and verse 13, we were afar off. Romans 5 and verse 6, we were sinners. But thank God Romans 5 and verse 8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I believe the world is waiting for somebody to show a little bit of love to them. Do you know every day you and I live 3,000 teenagers run away from home and they wind up in places like Haight-Ashbury and Greenwich Village. Why? The world is dying for just a little bit of love. I remember walking down the streets of Columbia, South Carolina years ago and I started to pass by a man who was obviously a vagrant. So I took out a track and I said, sir, may I stop you? I said, I'd like to give you something to read. This tells you what Jesus did on the cross for you. He said, wait a minute. He said, why'd you stop me? He said, don't you see all these people on the street? I said, sir, yes, I do. I've never seen you before, but I love you. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, my wife doesn't even love me. He said, she took the kids years ago and she left me. He said, do you know that I'm wanted all over the state of South Carolina for crimes I've committed? He said, if the police knew that I were here today talking with you, they would take me to jail. I said, sir, I believe your story. I've never seen you before, but I love you. I said, but I've got a better story to tell you than that. I said, I can tell you about somebody who loved you far more than I could ever love you, and that's Jesus Christ. I said, would you let me tell you about him? He said, sure, go ahead. So I took him through the Romans road. And after I explained the Romans road, I noticed big tears running down his cheeks. I said, sir, if somebody loved you this much, the least you could do is let him save you. Would you be willing on these busy Saturday afternoon streets of Columbia, South Carolina, to bow your head and receive Christ. He said, I would. Prayed the sinner's prayer after he got assurance of his salvation. 
You know what he did? He reached in his back pocket, took out a pint of whiskey. He said, you see this? He said, I'm not going to need this anymore. He went over the sewer and he poured it down the sewer and he said, I'm going to go home, Mr. Comfort, and I'm going to find my wife and my family and I'm going to tell them that Jesus Christ loves them. It's the love that makes a difference. Number one, he had an undying love. Number two, he was a man of compassion. Take your Bible and turn, please, to Matthew chapter 23. Here is the strongest sermon that Jesus Christ ever preached. Seven times he scathed upon the religionists of his day, the National Council of Churches. He said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why did sepulchers full of dead men's bones? Notice, please, verse 15. He said, you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Man, that's strong preaching. He called that religious crowd children of hell. Notice verse 33. He said, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Don't you see? He called that religious crowd a bunch of snakes. Now, Brother Ingram's a strong preacher. I've heard him preach many times. But I want to ask you, has he ever called you folks a bunch of snakes? Jesus called that religious crowd a bunch of snakes. But he had license to preach that way. You know why? How he ended his sermon. Will you notice, please, verses 37 and 38. He ended his sermon in tears. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often I would have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather chickens under wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He ended his sermon in tears. Matthew 9 and verse 36. Matthew 14 and verse 14. Mark chapter 1 and verse 41. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Matthew 20 and verse 34, so Jesus had compassion on them. Luke 7 and verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now let me give you a simple definition that you can put in the margin of your Bible about compassion. Here it is. Compassion is this, your pain in my heart. Did you get that? Your pain in my heart. In other words, when you can see a person suffer and you can suffer along with them, that's compassion. I heard the preacher say that his wife had had cancer and for years his wife had not had a good night's sleep. One night he got down on his knees and he said, Now Lord, here's my precious Christian wife. Hadn't had a good night's sleep in years. He said, Lord... Would you let me take her pain tonight so she could have one good night's sleep? You know what he said? He said he didn't sleep a wink all night long. All over his body he suffered this excruciating pain. But he looked over and he saw his wife sleeping so peacefully for the first time in years. Your pain in my heart. Let me ask you a question, folks. Have you ever gotten alone with God? 
and you prayed for your loved ones and you said, Lord, I don't care what it means, even if it means taking my own life, save my loved ones. In West Virginia, I was asked to judge some essays from some independent Baptist teenagers in the state. And the one I judged the winner broke my heart. This young lady told how she was saved. She said her sister had been saved. But she thought it was a big joke. She made fun of her daughter, sister's Christianity. The mom and dad made fun of their daughter's Christianity. However, one night she was downstairs by her sister's bedroom. And she put her ear to the door. She heard some crying and praying going on. And she heard her sister pray and pray this. Oh God, save my sister. Oh God, save my mom and dad. Lord, I don't care what it means, even if it means taking my own life. Save my mom and my dad and my sister. Two months later, the praying girl was killed in an automobile wreck. But at the funeral, the mom and the dad and the sister were born again. Your pain in my heart. A postman came to me in Indianapolis. He said, Brother Comfort, I have 700 families on my mail route. He said, I have been in every home and presented to every family the plan of salvation. He said, many mornings as I am driving on my mail route, I will find myself parked on the side of the road over my steering wheel weeping. Why? He said, I know what goes on behind every one of those 700 homes. Have you ever shed a tear over the souls of men? I was preaching in Pensacola. A young lady graduated from Pensacola Christian College. She was a member of Smyrna Baptist Church there in Pensacola. And I said, now, on Wednesday night, we're going to have family night. I said, what I want to do is I want to preach an evangelistic message in an effort to get some family for whom you've been praying saved. I said, now, do everything you can to get unsaved relatives here on Wednesday night. So this young lady got on the phone after church. She called her daddy in South Dakota. She said, Daddy, Wednesday night is family night in our revival meeting. She said, I want you to come and sit by me on Wednesday night. Do you know what? She said, I will pay your round-trip ticket if you will come and sit by me on Wednesday night. It cost about $900 to get him there. She sat him on the end of the second row. That's wise. Now, folks, you don't bring an unsaved person to church and sit them on the back row. That row seems like a mile long when they sit on the back row. You sit them toward the front. When I preached on the unpardonable sin and gave the invitation, this man came down the aisle to get saved. He was there Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Friday night. After the service Friday night, he came to me, gave me a big bear hug, and said, thank you, Brother Comfort, for leading me to Christ. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, listen, when I preach, I do that which comes naturally. I said, the person you need to thank is that daughter who paid $900 to get you under the preaching of the Word of God. I want to ask you, how much would you pay to get your unsaved loved ones under the sound of the preaching of the Word of God? 1996, I was preaching in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. 
On Monday night, a black lady came to me with her 11-year-old son. And her son said, Mama, Mama, tell Brother Comfort, tell Brother Comfort. She said, last night, Brother Comfort, when my son came home from church, he said, Mama, I've got to call Grandma in Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, why do you have to call Grandma in Las Vegas? He said, Mama, all I can tell you is I've got to call Grandma in Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, you know, my 11-year-old son led his grandmother to Jesus Christ last night over the phone because he saw her on her way to hell. I was preaching in Fairfax, Virginia. All of a sudden, a young man and his wife saw his unsaved relatives in North Dakota on their way to hell, northern Minnesota, excuse me. So you know what he did? He got in his car, drove 900 miles. When he got out of his car, he came to his mom and dad and said, Mom and dad, I've driven 900 miles to talk to you. When I finish talking to you, I'm getting back in my car and driving 900 miles back to Fairfax. He said, the reason I will have driven 1,800 miles is for the first time in my life, I've seen you on your way to hell, and it breaks my heart. You know what his mom and dad said? Son, if our soul means that much to you, we want to be saved. You know what God says about that? Psalm 126, 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So number one, he had an undying love. Number two, he was a man of compassion. Number three, he was a man of prayer. Take your Bible and turn, please, to Matthew 14 and verse 23. He was a man of prayer. Notice, please, Matthew 14 and verse 23. It says, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up apart into a mountain to pray, and when even was come, he was there alone. He was a man of prayer. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, he got alone early in the morning. And he prayed. Mark chapter 6 and verse 47, he got alone in the evening and he prayed. In Luke 5 and verse 16, he got alone in the wilderness and he prayed. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 12, he prayed all night long. In Matthew 4 and verse 2, he prayed 40 days and 40 nights. And you know what the theme song is in most of our churches? Just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Excuse me. That didn't come from the lips of the Son of God. That came from a songwriter. Here's what Jesus said, Luke 18 and verse 1. And he spake unto them a parable of this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6 and verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Philippians 4 in verse 6, be careful for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you got alone with God? And you said, God, I didn't get alone with you to ask you for anything. I just got alone with you to tell you how much I love you. I believe the heart of God is heavy for his children just to get along with him and tell him how much we love him. 
Now, when I started in evangelism in 61, I made it a principle to send follow-up material to every church where I go for a meeting. And in that is uh, a page called Operation Prayer. And here's what I encourage churches to do. Three months before I get there, start a prayer list and circulate it among the people. I can go to a prayer meeting on Saturday night before a meeting starts Sunday morning and I can tell you what kind of a meeting we're going to have. You know how? If I go in that prayer meeting and people are praying in generalities, Lord save the unsaved, I know not much is going to happen. But when I go to that prayer meeting and I hear somebody pray, oh God, there's Mr. Brown. There's Mr. Smith down the road. I've been witness to him. I've been praying for him. God gives specific answers to specific prayers. In 1962, I was in a meeting in northern Michigan. It was a one-room school building that was converted into a church building. And so when I got there on Saturday, the pastor met me. And he said, Brother Comfort, let me show you something. He said, here's a prayer list our people have been praying for for three months. He said, would you take this prayer list and pray for these people in your devotions daily? I said, I surely will. So we would meet before the service, have a prayer meeting, pray for some of these on the prayer list, and we'd check them off. They'd come to get saved. Check them off. They'd come to get saved. Three years later, I was back there in a meeting, and the pastor met me on Saturday, and he said, Brother Comfort, do you remember when you were here three years ago? I gave you a prayer list that our people had been praying for for three months. He said, let me show you something. He said, this lady that was on the prayer list that was saved is now leading the choir. He said, this woman that was saved that was on the prayer list is now president of the women's missionary group. He said, this man that was on the prayer list that was saved is now a trustee. He said, this man that was saved that was on the prayer list is now a deacon. And he said, Brother Comfort, everybody that was on that prayer list that was saved is around three years later serving God. Now, folks, I can talk people into coming down an aisle, but I will guarantee you if I talk them into coming down an aisle, when I'm gone, they're going to be gone. But if they come down an aisle because you have prayed for them, you mark it down, they're going to be around a long time after the evangelist is gone. Now, let me encourage you. How many of you have loved ones you prayed for for 10 years or more to be saved? Raise your hand. All right. I prayed for my daddy 33 years. I preached on June 23rd, 1986 on a Monday night in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania after paying 33 years for my daddy to be saved on a Monday night. My daddy walked down the aisle and the pastor led him to Christ at the front row. Now, ladies and gentlemen, don't give up. Don't give up. God gives specific answers to specific prayers. All right, in closing, number one, he had an undying love. Number two, he was a man of compassion. Number three, he was a man of prayer. Finally, number four, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Take your Bible, please, and turn to Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, notice, please, Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Look this way, please. This is a tremendous thing to me. 
As far as we know, Jesus Christ lived 30 years and he never preached a sermon. He never did a miracle. You know what began his public ministry? Matthew 3, 16 and 17, he was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to be filled with the Spirit, to be fruitful in the manner of soul winning, how much more do you and I have to be filled with the Spirit? I went to Bob Jones Academy as a 10th grader. I was 15, just getting ready to turn 16. From the age of 7 to 15, I sang in the nightclub stage, radio, and TV. I had one goal in life, and my dad had that goal for me too, to see my name in lights. I got saved when I was 15, and I came to my dad, and I said, Dad, God saved me. He's called me to preach. And I said, if you'll let me, I'll go to Bob Jones Academy, and I'll begin to prepare to preach. He said, son, you're a fool. He said, everything we've worked for all of your life is down the drain. Now, on Sunday night, instead of being in churches, I was in a nightclub singing somewhere. My grandfather would take me because I was a minor and I had to be accompanied by an adult. And I said, Dad, that's all behind me. I said, I don't care about that stuff anymore. I said, if you'll let me, I'll go to Bob Jones Academy and I'll begin to prepare to preach. He said, son, you're a fool. But he said, I'll let you go. But if you go, I will not send you one penny. In the three years I was in Bob Jones Academy, my daddy did not send me one penny. And the academy cost the same as the university did. The four years I was in Bob Jones University, one weekend my dad broke his word and he sent me $5. In seven years, my daddy sent me a total of $5. But ladies and gentlemen, I would sit in that chapel and I would see an old man traipse across that platform, Dr. Bob Jones Sr., and that old man put some fire in my bones that has never gone out. Never gone out. And I would hear preachers get up and preach this. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And in my heart, I was anxious to have the power of God. And anything God had, I wanted it. And so in my heart, I would say, Lord, I need to be filled with the Spirit. But I don't know how. I wish somebody would tell me how to be filled with the Spirit. So Brother Billy, I started reading books on the Spirit-filled life. I read R.A. Torrey's book on how to be filled with the Spirit, and I was too immature to understand it. So I graduated from high school in 1957. I was getting ready to come to the university in the fall of 57. I was out in uh, Caldwell, Idaho, staying with one of my classmates. I was working as a hod carrier for a bricklayer. And so after five weeks, the house that we were working on was finished. And so I looked around Caldwell for work and couldn't find any work. Somebody said, Brother Comfort, if you can get to Chicago, they have good jobs, they pay well, you can get some money to go back to the university in the fall. So I hitchhiked from Caldwell, Idaho to uh, Chicago, Illinois. I did some stupid things in those days. Now, folks, I had more zeal than I had knowledge. I hitchhiked all over America in those days. I wouldn't think about doing that today. But I got to Chicago, Illinois, and I stayed in the YMCA hotel for three weeks. I looked for job after job after job. I came within a half an inch of getting a job. You say, what do you mean? 
I went to the railroad and they measured me. They said, Ron, you are five feet five and a half. They said, we have a policy that we don't hire anybody who is less than five feet six. I think I'm going to sue them. But you know why God had me there in Chicago? The last Sunday I was there, Dr. M.R. DeHaan was going to preach at Moody Bible Church. And I went with all the anticipation of a young aspiring preacher boy. I sat in that auditorium, Brother Ingram. There were over a thousand people there. And lo and behold, you know what Dr. DeHaan preached about? How to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he simplified it where an 18-year-old young man could understand it. He said being filled with the Holy Spirit has two qualities. First of all, there is cleansing. Cleansing. Romans 6, 11, and 12. Likewise reckon ye also to be self dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Now listen carefully. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, you're not a candidate for being filled with the Spirit. The presence of unconfessed sin makes the absence of the fullness of the Spirit. Can I repeat that? The presence of unconfessed sin makes the absence of the fullness of the Spirit. And ladies and gentlemen, if there is sin in your life that you have not claimed victory over and it is dominating you, you are not a candidate to being filled with the Holy Spirit. So number one, there's cleansing. Number two, there is control. Ephesians 5 and verse 18. And be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled or controlled with the Holy Spirit. Are you listening? It is not a matter of rededication. It is a matter of total dedication. You see, rededication takes care of one area of your life. God's not interested in that. He wants to take care of it all. Here it is. Lord, I'm yours. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll do what you want me to do. I'm yours, lock, stock, and barrel. I'm yours. Have you ever come to that place in your life? Our first mission field trip was in 1976 to Kenya, Africa. The first night I was there, it transformed my life. And uh, in Kenya, Africa, I was asked to preach in the Lake Victoria region. People came from all over Kenya to that meeting. And I saw ladies with babies on their backs. They walked 100 miles just to get to that meeting. I looked at their feet. Many of them were bruised and calloused. I used to joke about missionary barrels. I don't anymore. If those people had had missionary barrels, they'd had nothing to wear. And we were told about a pastor south of Kenya who announced that in a particular day in months in advance, they were going to have a sacrificial Sunday. He said, now folks, here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk to your mates. And I want you to pray. And I want you to do something in the way of giving above anything you've ever done. He said, it may be money. It may be clothes. It may be food. But I want it to be a sacrifice offering. Well, in months to come, Sacrifice Sunday took place. And on Sunday morning, he had the people line up in the aisles. And he said, now here's a large basket at the front. I want you to come and place your sacrifice offering in the basket. Something caught the preacher's eye. He noticed a man walking nervously back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Finally, this man came down the aisle. 
Tears were coming down his face. He said, Pastor, two months ago when you announced Sacrificial Sunday, my wife and I planned and we prayed and we wanted to do something far more than we had ever done in our lives. And God led us to plant a corn crop. He said we were not going to give a tenth of that or even 50%. We were going to give it all to God. And we watched our corn grow day after day. And we were so excited about this day. He said, Pastor, as you know, we've had an elephant stampede through the corn. Not one ear of corn was left. He said, when my wife and I got up this morning, we got up with a broken heart. We knew that others would come and place their sacrifice offerings in the basket, but we'd have none. He said, Pastor, our sacrifice offering has been ruined. We don't even have one ear of corn to give to God. He said, the only thing I know to give to God is myself. With that, he stepped in the offering basket and he said, Lord, here's my sacrifice offering. Please accept it. You have longed for sweet peace and for faith to increase. You have earnestly, fervently prayed, but you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is laid. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the spirit control. You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield him your body and soul. Would you be willing to do that tonight? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, no one's looking around. I want my wife to come to the piano tonight and play. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. I'm going to give a different kind of an invitation tonight. Listen carefully. How many of you now, we are coming to the end of 2016. Almost 12 months have passed. All right, here's what I'm asking you. How many of you in this building tonight have led somebody to Christ in, 10, in 11 and a half months of the year of 2016. If you have led somebody to Christ in this year, would you stand to your feet, please? If you have led somebody to Christ in this year, would you stand to your feet? Keep standing, I want to count you. Thirty-two are standing. My, that's wonderful. That is far more than the average church in which I would ask that. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, here's the second part of my invitation. Some have said there are only three reasons why a person is not involved in soul winning. Number one, he's not saved. Number two, he doesn't believe in hell. Or number three, he's lazy. All right, I'm going to ask you tonight, how many of you would say tonight, by God's grace, from this day on through 2017, I am going to be praying that God will enable me to win somebody to Christ. And next year, at Christmas time, when we give testimonies, I want to be able to say I have led somebody to Christ in the year of 2017. If you would say, by God's grace, I'm going to be continuously praying that God will help me to win somebody to Christ 
in the year of 2017 or before 2016 is over. If you will say that, stand to your feet right now, please. God bless you. Now you know what this is, folks. This is multiplying. It's not paying the pastor to win the souls, but everybody's going to get involved. Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Some of you can just kneel where you are. Some of you want to come to the altar. But you're saying, dear God, I want to win somebody to Christ in the next year. Now somebody says, well, Brother Comfort, I don't know the Romans road. Do you know what happened to you when you got saved? All right, you know enough to lead somebody to Christ. So if you need to come right now, you come on and you say, dear God, I want to win somebody to Christ in the year of 2017. My continuous prayer is, Lord, make me fruitful in winning people to Christ. Father, we're going out into a world when we leave this church building tonight that's an enemy of Jesus Christ. There are people on our jobs that use his name in vain all day long. There are people that laugh at what we're doing tonight. And yet, dear God, we believe the world is dying for just a little bit of love. And I pray, dear God, that you'll give these who are here at this altar tonight an undying love. Help them to be men and women of compassion, men and women of prayer, and men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And I would pray that in months to come, we'll get word from the pastor that many of our people who came forward on that Sunday night have been able to win somebody to Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. You may go back to your seats. I want us to sing, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way. One stanza, and then we'll turn it over to the